Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This is Abdul Nasser Jangda. If you enjoy and benefit from listening to our podcast, please donate to Qalam by visiting supportqalam.com. We love being able to share this content for free with you and your donation ensures that we are always able to do so. Each podcast we produce has tens of thousands of listeners. So the opportunity for gaining immense reward by supporting this effort is endless, insha'Allah. You never know who will be able to benefit from your contributions and donations. Jazakumullahu khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Asirat al-Nabawiyyah, the prophetic biography. In the previous session, we started talking about the Hajjat al-Wida'ah, the farewell pilgrimage of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. As we talked about in a lot of detail previously, um, that this is the only Hajj performed by the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Islam, some commentators on the seerah do refer to the Prophet ﷺ going to the place of Mina to preach to and to call to Islam some of the various tribes from around Medina, uh, from around Arabia at that time, during which he ultimately met with, and then they accepted Islam and gave the oath of allegiance, the Muslims uh, of what would become Medina, Al-Madinatul Munawwara, some of the commentators referred to that as, you know, almost kind of as minor hajjs performed by the Prophet ﷺ. However, in the way that we know hajj, by the definitions that we uh, refer to hajj as, by those definitions, this is the only hajj performed by the Prophet ﷺ. So previously we spoke about how the Prophet ﷺ prepared, when they departed, how they departed from Medina, Al-Madinatul Munawwara, and how they traveled to Mecca to, before the beginning of hajj, to basically, they arrived in Mecca, and then we further talked about how they arrived into Mecca and the Prophet and the Muslims, they made their way to Al-Ka'bah al-Sharifa, Al-Masjid al-Haram. They went there to the sacred house of God and they basically arrived there and the du'as the Prophet made when arriving there. What we're going to talk about today is continuing on from that point. And the continuation from that point is now that the Prophet he first performed an Umrah. Now in the previous session we also talked about the four umrahs performed in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And we talked about them. The fourth of the four was here that was done in conjunction with the Hajj. And this is kind of a little bit of an opportunity. And again, I'm not going to get into a lot of technical detail. However, just to briefly address exactly what the Prophet ﷺ did... The Prophet وسلم, he by the in the opinion and by the majority of the narrations, the Prophet وسلم, he performed a Hajj which is known as Hajjul Qiran. Al Hajjul Qiran, which means that a person assumes the ihram, the state of ihram, and then that person who is in that state of ihram performs an umrah. When they are done with umrah, they do not come out 
from the ihram and then they continue on and perform the entirety of the hajj in the same state of ihram. That doesn't mean they're wearing the same two garments. They can actually change the ihram garments. They can actually even put water to wash themselves, like just a simple bath with water, a shower with water, if you will. However, they of course can't use scents and soap and things of that nature. The other type of hajj that the Prophet ﷺ advised the companions to perform, and the majority of the companions performed that type of hajj, and that is also a very virtuous type of hajj, and in the, in the opinion of the majority, when people come from outside of Mecca to perform the hajj, they must perform one of the two types of these, one of these first two types of hajj. The second type of hajj is called al-hajjut tamattu'ah or hajjut tamattu'ah, which means a hajj in which you take full advantage of the opportunity that you have of visiting the Kaaba. And what that means is that a person assumes the state of ihram, they arrive into Mecca, they perform their umrah. When they are done with the umrah, they actually shave their head or cut their hair, and then they exit the state of ihram. They exit the state of ihram, and then whatever number of days remain, they remain there in Mecca or whatever, and they are not in a state of ihram. Of course, they worship and do tawaf and things like that. And then, on the morning of the 8th, the 8th of the hijjah the day that Hajj begins, Yawm tarwiyah which we're going to be talking about, they re-enter the state of ihram for the sake of Hajj. So they have two separate states of ihram. All right, one for Umrah, second one for Hajj. And the days in between, they are outside the state of ihram. That's what the Prophet ﷺ recommended the companions to do because again, it's a little less difficult. You're not in the state of ihram for whatever time duration you have between your umrah and your hajj. And then the third type of hajj is called hajjul ifrad where you only just simply perform a hajj and you do not do an umrah prior to it. You do not precede your hajj with an umrah. That is usually reserved for people who are from Mecca and the immediately surrounding areas. Alright? So the Prophet ﷺ, he arrived now, they're in the state of ihram, and now the Prophet ﷺ, he performed the umrah. So Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha in a hadith of Bukhari says, إِنَّ أَوَّلَ شَيْءٍ بَدَأَ بِهِ حِينَ قَدِمَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمَ أَنَّهُ تَوَضَّعَ ثُمَّ طَعْفَ the Prophet ﷺ did not belabor, he did not waste any time. Rather, when the Prophet ﷺ arrived into Mecca, he went there to the Kaaba, he gazed upon the Kaaba, he made dua and supplicated to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as we talked about. The Prophet ﷺ performed wudu, and then the Prophet ﷺ immediately started with the tawaf. And that's very important. Now again, just as a side comment, and I'm not going to go into this too much, it's not necessarily a hajj seminar in that sense, right? But I will just mention just a few comments just so that it removes any concern that someone might have. When you go for hajj or umrah, you know, these days, and you arrive into Mecca, usually the first thing you do, you know, you've arrived by bus, they drop you off at your hotel, you have your luggage, you have to put your luggage up, you have to use the restroom and whatnot because you've probably flown in on a 13-hour flight or a six-hour bus ride or whatever the case is, or maybe you were camped out at the Jeddah airport for two days. Whatever your situation is, you have obviously, you need, it's understandable that you need a little bit of a moment to use the restroom and freshen up in that sense. Number two, you go to the hotel and you put your luggage up and whatnot. Somebody might 
be upset that that is not following the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ went straight to the haram and he started his umrah. But that amount of delay, whatever it may be, 30 minutes to an hour where you, put your, you get your room, you put your stuff up, you make your wudu, use the restroom, whatever, that's understandable. The Prophet ﷺ made wudu, putting up your stuff and making sure your stuff is going to be safe and okay is an understandable delay. The delay that would not be understandable uh, that would not be that would not be in compliance with the practice the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ is that for instance if I arrive and I'm in a state of ihram and I go to my hotel and then I decide to just sleep rest wake up eat talk sit around and then I start my umrah a day later that is not in accordance with the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. So just to clarify, somebody, because sometimes when we go with Umrah groups, we lead Umrah groups, we get there and people are so anxious and nervous, they don't even want to go put their stuff up in the hotel, and we have to kind of explain to them, no, that's understandable, you need to put your stuff up. Secondly, the narration goes on to mention that the Prophet ﷺ كان أول ما ابتدى به عليه الصلاة والسلام استناءم الحجر الأسود قبل الطواف. The Prophet ﷺ. Now, how did he begin doing his tawaf? The very first thing the Prophet ﷺ did was that he went and he kissed the black stone. It's referred to as istilam, which basically means he showed respect to the black stone, like he kissed and greeted the black stone. And from there, the Prophet ﷺ, he started now the tawaf counterclockwise with the Kaaba to your left shoulder. The Prophet ﷺ now started the tawaf. Jabir radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, Hatta ida atayna al-bayta ma'ahu, when we arrived there at the Kaaba with him, because now all the tens of thousands of people that were there, some who had arrived with the Prophet ﷺ, the others who were waiting, awaiting the arrival of the Prophet ﷺ, they all went in. And he says, Istalam al-Rukan, we all saw that the Prophet ﷺ went and he kissed and touched the black stone. And then the Prophet ﷺ did the tawaf. And I'm going to be talking more about exactly how he performed the tawaf. Just a little side note, because now we've brought up the point about the Prophet ﷺ kissing the black stone. So some folks might be familiar with that already. Some folks might be curious uh, about that. So just to explain that a little bit, there are some narrations which refer to the idea that the black stone is a stone that was sent from paradise by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be placed around the Kaaba. There are some weak narrations which allude to the idea that it used to be white and then it was made black through the sins of people. Wallahu ta'ala alam bisawab. A lot of those narrations do not reach the levels of authenticity. Nevertheless, it is a sacred stone that is at a sacred place and it is part of a sacred ritual. We, gest we gesture towards it or kiss it if the opportunity presents itself. However, I would like to take the opportunity to mention a hadith of Bukhari in which Umar bin al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu very famously he said when he came there to the black stone, فَقَبَّلَهُ He kissed the black stone and then he said, إِنِّي لَأَعْلَمُ أَنَّكَ حَجَرٌ He said that I know for a fact that you are simply a stone. لَا تَضُرُّ وَلَا تَنْفَعُ You do not cause any harm, nor do you benefit in any way, in and of, in and of yourself. You don't contain any harm or benefit. وَلَوْلَا أَنِّي رَأَيْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَمْ يُقَبِّلُكَ مَا قَبَّلْتُكَ 
Had I not seen the messenger of Allah, peace and blessings be upon him, kissing you, I would not have kissed you. And just to remind ourselves of the fundamental idea within Islam that we do not ascribe, you know, sacredness and divinity or, or, or we do not, you know, demonstrate reverence to objects and things. But rather what we do is we emulate, we obey the command of God and secondly, we emulate the blessed practices of the Prophet ﷺ. So because the Prophet ﷺ kissed this stone, we do so as well. And Umar bin al-Khattab, may Allah be pleased with him, is reminding us of that particular fact. Now, in a narration of Abu Dawood and al-Nasai, Ibn Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, he says that anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam kana la yada'u an yastalima al-rukna al-yamani wal-hajra fi kulli tawfatin. Second point about how the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would do tawaf. In every single circuit of the tawaf, so a tawaf is an act of worship. The tawaf consists of going around the Kaaba seven times, seven circuits, and then following that by praying two raka'ahs of nafil prayer, which we'll talk about in just a moment. The Prophet ﷺ, Abdullah bin Umar, an authentic narration, he says, in every single circuit, the Prophet ﷺ would touch uh, the black stone and the corner that is right before the black stone, which is known as Ar-Rukn al-Yamani, quite literally because it points in the direction of Yemen, to the south, the Prophet ﷺ would touch that corner, and then he would touch the black stone on every single circuit. And there's an explanation to that, in which Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu in a hadith of Bukhari says, لم أرى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يستلم من البيت إلا ركنين اليمانيين. And he says that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم would only touch these two southern corners of the Kaaba itself, the black stone and the ركن يماني. And he goes on to say, ما أرى النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ترك استلام الركنين الشاميين إلا أنهما لم يتمما على قواعد إبراهيم. Abdullah bin Umar says, in my estimation, what I understood is that the Prophet ﷺ would not touch the other two corners of the black stone that face towards the north which are known as the Shami corners because they face towards the north, he would not touch those two corners because those two corners are not the original two corners of the structure of the Kaaba. But because if you can visualize the Kaaba, and if you've been there, then of course you can think of it, but even if you visualize it, if you haven't been there, you, rem- you might rem- recall there being kind of a half circle, a bit of a wall, a half circle on that other side of the Kaaba. That half circle, that wall, signifies the original structure of the Kaaba itself, which was left out of the structure that area was left out of the structure when the Kaaba was renovated and reconstructed five years before revelation came to the Prophet ﷺ, when he was 35 years old. And there's that very famous story that they needed, people were quarreling and fighting over who will get to put the black stone back in its place. And then the Prophet ﷺ ended up resolving that dispute by having them all hold the corners of the sheet. And the Prophet ﷺ lifted the black stone and placed it back in its place. Which also, if you think about it, is quite remarkable. Think about that moment before Nubuwa, and then think about the Prophet ﷺ entering the Kaaba and kissing the black stone at this point at the end of his life. 
So remarkable. From where to where? Right? That that day when he placed that black stone in its place, the Kaaba was filled with idols. And here today, the Prophet is returning the Kaaba to its original purpose and orientation of the worship of the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? The house that Ibrahim raised the foundations of. So, that, that area of the Kaaba was left out of the structure because the Meccans at that time could not afford to include it. And so that's why it was left out. And we had talked about this earlier that the Prophet ﷺ during the conquest of Mecca, he had actually made a comment to Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, لَوْلَا حَدِيثُ عَهْدِ قَوْمِكِ بِالْإِسْلَامِ لَغَيَّرْتُهَا Had your people not been so new to Islam, kind of tongue-in-cheek, kind of jokingly, he referred to the Meccans as your people. Right? That's kind of joking with Aisha radiallahu ta'ala because they're his people too, right? But he jokingly calls them her people. And secondly, something subtle and something beautiful, he called them her people and not his people because he promised the Medinans that he would always be their people. That they were his people. I am yours. I will always come back to Medina. That's my home. So... The Prophet ﷺ had expressed that initial wish to kind of return the Kaaba to its original structure, but then the Prophet ﷺ decided not to do that. Just kind of fast forwarding into Islamic history, just so that we are kind of aware since we're talking about the structure of the Kaaba here, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha would inform that narration, she would pass that narration, those words of the Prophet ﷺ, on to her nephew, her student, and the companion of the Prophet ﷺ, Abdullah ibn Zubair, radiallahu ta'ala anhuma. She told him, the Prophet ﷺ said this. Years later, in fact decades later, when Abdullah ibn Zubair, radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, after the Khulafa Rashidin, when he was in charge of the city of Mecca, he ended up changing the structure of the Kaaba to include that half circle area, which is called Hijr Ismail or the Hatim. He changed the structure of the Kaaba to include it, according to that wish the Prophet ﷺ had expressed, that desire he had shared. There was a conflict going on at that time between the, Mus- the rulers of the Muslim empire at that time, the Umayyads, he was basically fighting against them. They ultimately ended up defeating Abdullah bin Zubayr radiallahu ta'ala anhuma and taking control over Mecca. When they took control over Mecca, at that time, the ruler, he said, oh, Abdullah bin Zubayr radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, may Allah be pleased with him. This ruler, not knowing what he was talking about, he said, oh, Abdullah bin Zubayr billah has committed this heresy, this blasphemy. He changed the Kaaba. How dare he? So then that ruler changes it back to the shape, the original shape of it, or not the original shape, but the shape that it was during the lifetime of the Prophet somehow it is today, the square, leaving that half circle area out of it. Later on, he then realizes, Abdullah bin Zubayr radiallahu ta'ala anhu did not do anything wrong, nor was he doing anything on, out of his own thoughts and ideas. Rather, he was simply acting on the knowledge that he got from his aunt, our mother Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, who heard it directly from the Prophet And it's a hadith in Bukhari. It's an authentic narration. So he then realizes, oh, I made the mistake. So then he said, should I change it back? And obviously, some people probably told him, you need to stop just this game. 
And so they said, you need to talk to somebody and get, you know, consult about this. And he ended up consulting at that time, you know, if not the greatest, one of the greatest scholars of that time and overall of the history of the Muslim Ummah, Imam Malik, Imam Alimul Madina, Imam Udar al Hijra, the Imam of Medina, Imam Malik, Rahimullah Ta'ala. He consulted Imam Malik. And he said, I did this, I found this out, I changed it, should I change it back now? And Imam Malik said, please don't touch it. He said, don't mess with it, don't touch it. He said, otherwise, you're, it's going to become al-uba. It's going to become a toy. Fi aidil muluk, in the hands of kings. And so what happened is, you'll change it back. And let's say some guy comes and overthrows you, defeats you, and he takes over. He's going to want to change it back to kind of put his own stamp on this era. And then the other guys, whoever overthrows him is going to come and change it back and change it back and change it back. Nobody touches it. Leave it. This was the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This was the decree of God. And so it's remained in that structure until today. There's been renovations and things like that just to kind of fix up the structure. But all in all, the structure has been left in that form till today as we see it now. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to explain that because Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu ta'ala anuma notes that about the Prophet Another thing the Prophet would do in his tawaf, there's a narration in the sunan of Imam Nasa'i rahimahullahu ta'ala narrated by Abdullah ibn Asa'ib, the companion of the Prophet he says, I was watching and listening to the Prophet ﷺ do tawaf, and I heard him that when he was during, during the last fourth of his circuits, where he would touch the Rukan Yamani, and then he was coming around to the black stone, during that last quarter of the circuit, the Prophet ﷺ was saying, رَبَّنَا آتِنَا فِي الدُّنْيَا حَسَنَا وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ حَسَنَا وَقِنَا عَذَابِ النَّارِ Ayah number 201 of Surah Al-Baqarah, that dua, very comprehensive, powerful dua of the Qur'an. He was saying that dua, that oh, our Lord, grant us in the life of this world the best of things. Grant us in the life of the hereafter the best of things. And O oh Allah, protect us from the punishment of the fire of hell. So this beautiful dua, just again a little side comment, not directly related to what we're talking about. A side comment you know, it's a very comprehensive dua of the Qur'an. It has these general words, so of course, you know, it can refer to a number of different things. However, very, it's very fascinating and very interesting when you pay attention, when you look at what the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, how they used to interpret this dua, and this dua from the Qur'an. رَبَّنَا آتِنَا فِي الدُّنْيَا حَسَنَةً Grant us the best of things in the life of this world. Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he said, that is salah. O Allah, grant us the best of things, grant us the ability to pray and enjoy our prayer in this world. Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he said that is, um, you know, having a good family, having peace and tranquility in the home and amongst loved ones. Righteous family, righteous wife, good children. Right? In another narration, Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhumah, he said that Rabbana atina fi dunya hasanatan, the best of things in this world, he said that is the knowledge of the Qur'an, the understanding of the book of Allah. Right? Abdullah ibn Umar said it's the sunnah of the Prophet, peace be upon him. So it's not, that doesn't limit the meaning of it, because what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says is vast and encompasses many things. Right? But it's just a little insightful to see to understand how these folks, 
would perceive what blessings are in this life and in this world. I might say it's a gigantic home, but the people around the Messenger, peace be upon him, وسلم, they used to think that it was the, having a relationship with Allah, having a good relationship with your family, that those were the true blessings of the life of this world. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us those things. Now, kind of moving on, Jabir radiallahu ta'ala anhu, as I was mentioning before, that the Prophet ﷺ, after he finished the tawaf, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about how the Prophet ﷺ would do tawaf, but he said after the Prophet ﷺ would finish seven circuits, ثُمَّ أَتَى الْمَقَامُ ثُمَّ أَتَى الْمَقَامُ الْمَقَامُ meaning Maqam Ibrahim. وَاتَّخِذُونَ مِنْ مَقَامِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ مُصَلَّى This is known as the station of Abraham, the station of Ibrahim ﷺ. This is the place where Ibrahim ﷺ prayed at the Kaaba. And so that place was marked and was preserved and known as a blessed place because the Prophet of, Ibra- Prophet of Allah, Ibrahim salam, prayed there. And so the Prophet salam, came to that place and that place is marked even till today. It's got a little bit of a, a fixture or you know, kind of an ornament that sits at that particular place. The Prophet salam, came to that place, he stood at that place and he recited the verse from Surah Al-Baqarah, Go and pray where Abraham stood. Allah commanded the Prophet ﷺ, go and pray where Abraham stood. And the Prophet ﷺ prayed two rak'ahs, two units there at that particular place. And then the Prophet ﷺ went back to the Hajj al-Aswad, the black stone. He once again kissed the black stone. And then the Prophet ﷺ went to the mountain of Safa to begin the Sa'i. However, before we begin talking about the Sa'i, one thing I wanted to mention about the tawaf of the Prophet that was very distinct and very unique. And that is, we're going to go back a little bit in the life of the Prophet for a moment. Remember we talked about this previous, in the previous session, the Prophet the first Umrah, kind of referred to as an Umrah, the first Umrah he did, and the Muslims did, was known as the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. They put on Ihram, they got to the place of Hudaybiyah, and then the Meccans, the Quraysh, they stopped them. And they didn't let them come. And they entered into the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. They agreed to the Treaty. And part of the Treaty was that the Muslims returned back to Medina from there. They removed their Ihrams, they shaved their head, removed their Ihram, and they returned back to Medina, back home. And part of the treaty and the agreement of Hudaybiyah was that they would return back the following year and they would perform an Umrah and the Quraysh would allow them to come to uh, Mecca and perform Umrah and stay in Mecca for three days. And as we talked about in the previous session, that is known as Umratul Qada or Umratul Qisas or Umratul Qadiyah, the make-up Umrah from previous year. When they came for that particular Umrah, we had talked about this when we, when we had covered that here in the Sira class. But I'll remind all of us that when they came to perform that Umrah, there was a very tense um, you know, environment in Mecca. The tension was very high. Some of the leaders of the Quraysh, Ikrimah the son of Abu Jahl, Safwan the son of Umayyah, they protested the Prophet ﷺ doing Umrah by leaving Mecca. They went outside of Mecca and they camped out outside of Mecca for three days. And they said, we're not going to come back in until he leaves. Mecca ain't big enough for both of us. 
So they went outside. Some did that. A lot of others who still had a lot of animosity towards the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims, they didn't go outside, but what they did was they gathered together there in the Kaaba, like along the edges, didn't get in their way. They left the door open, the entrance open. They left the area of Tawaf open. They gathered around outside and they just kind of stood there and kind of stared him down. They kind of stood there and just stared him down to try to intimidate them and pressure them, right? And so when they were doing, when the Sahaba, the Prophet and the companions came to do that tawaf, that umrah, and they started the tawaf, you have to remember something. For many of the Meccan Muslims, the Muhajirun, they're seeing the Kaaba for the first time after seven years. Or maybe longer. Secondly, for the Muslims of Medina and surrounding areas, some of them had never seen the Kaaba before. So this was an extremely powerful, spiritual, humbling moment for them. Right? Those who have been before, think about the first time you went. How you were just overcome. And then also those who have not yet gone, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala invite you and allow you to go. And those who have not gone, you can probably imagine, you can, you can just you know, uh, sense at some level how overwhelmed you will be when you eventually do go. Right? So now, those Muslims, they enter in to do tawaf and they started doing tawaf. So again, they're so overcome with emotion and they're so humbled by Allah for granting them the opportunity to do so that naturally that humility started to manifest itself on them physically. They're crying. They have their heads lowered in humility before Allah. Shoulders kind of hunched over when you're crying. Your head is lowered. Your shoulders are kind of hunched over. They have their hands you know, spread before Allah. They're crying and making dua, thanking Allah. And so they, it, it's, it's beautiful. But we understand the beauty and the significance of it. Because we understand somebody is humbled before their Lord. But these people who were basically staring them down, intimidating them, they don't understand this. And especially part of the, the, the machismo in the culture at that time, right? And then thirdly, all, you know, they obviously see these people as rivals and enemies, so you're looking for any opportunity to take a jab at your enemy. So they started jeering them and mocking them and making fun of them. And they said that, look, Islam has broken their backs. Because they, they said, look how weak, frail they are. They're crying like weak people. Heads lowered, shoulders hunched over. Islam, Medina, Muhammad wasallam, has broken their backs. And they started kind of mocking them. The Prophet wasallam, who was a very you know, observant and sensitive person, you know, very aware of what's going on. He sensed this. And the Prophet ﷺ said, we need to demonstrate to them the strength Islam has given us. The strength our relationship with Allah grants us. The strength the Book of Allah has given us. So the Prophet ﷺ paused the Umrah, the Tawaf, gathered the companions, and he said, I need you to do two things. Number one, when we typically put on the ihram, like men folk, when they wear the ihram, you take one garment and you tie it around your waist as a lower garment, izar, lungi, etc. 
And then you take a second garment and you kind of put it over your shoulders, kind of like a shawl. So the Prophet ﷺ said, take that second garment that goes over your shoulder like a shawl, and he said, put it from under your arm, your armpit here, and basically wear it like this flung over your shoulder. So what that will do is, as, you know, as simple as it sounds, is it kind of shows the physical strength, the physical posture, right? Your shoulder, your arms, right? Just lets them know that we're so strong. Number two, the second thing the Prophet ﷺ said was that he said, there are seven circuits in the tawaf. He said, during the first three circuits, I want you to march, not walk. Ar-Raman. This, this putting that shawl, that cloth from under the arm, exposing the right arm and right shoulder, that is known as ittiba. And then march in the first three circuits, which is known as ar-ramal, yarmul fihi. All right, which is march. Stick your chest out, fix your posture, put your shoulders back, stick your chest out. Pick up your arms to your side and march. Doesn't mean run fast, but just march. Walk strong. And do that for three circuits, just so they know that we're strong. We're stronger than we were before. And then he said in the next, in the last four circuits, then you walk. Then you can go back to your dua and everything else. And you can slow down, lower your head, cry, make dua, whatever you want to do. رَمَلَ فِي ثَلَاثٍ وَمَشَاء فِي أَرْبَعٍ Or رَمَلَ ثَلَاثٍ وَمَشَاء أَرْبَعٍ Both narrations. So that is specifically the instruction of the Prophet ﷺ in how to do tawaf. And that's how he did it and that's how he instructed the companions to do it. Now here's the interesting thing. There's some discussion. So when you hear that story... When you hear that story for the first time, that that's the history of it, you might think to yourself, okay, if that was the reasoning behind it, when we go for Hajj or Umrah now, there's not enemies and mushrikun lined up in the haram, staring us down, trying to intimidate us. We're not going into enemy territory, so to speak. So do we still need to put that Ihram from under the right shoulder? Do we still need to, you know, to the best of our ability? And I'll comment on that in just a moment. But do we still need to kind of march a little bit, kind of stick our shoulders out, stick our shoulders back and chest out and kind of march a little bit? Do we still need to do that? Because there's nobody there watching. There's not an enemy, kind of the enemy's not there. So the answer from the vast overwhelming majority of the scholars of the Ummah, the Imams and the scholars of the Ummah, the answer is yes, we still do that. We still practice that. Why do we still practice that? Because the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims when they came in Hajjatul Wida, Mecca was Muslim territory now. In fact, the declaration was made a year ago, The Mushrikun were not even allowed into the Masjid Haram. So when the Muslims came for Hajjatul Wida, there were nothing but Muslims in Masjid Haram. And Mecca was under Muslim rule and Muslim control. 
So the enemy wasn't there. In spite of the fact that there was no enemy there, the Prophet ﷺ, Jabir radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and a number of other companions of the Prophet ﷺ, Abdullah bin Umar, Jabir radiallahu ta'ala anhu, etc., etc., all of them narrate that that year as well, when the Prophet ﷺ came, he still put the ihram from under his shoulder, number one. And number two, the Prophet ﷺ, he still marched in the first three circuits. And he told the companions to do the same. And all the companions did the same. And that's why when someone brought it up to Umar bin al-Khattab, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, during his khilafah, that now Islam is very strong and widespread and so on and so forth, we understand why the Prophet said to do it when he said to do it. But now we don't need to do it. And he says, this is the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ that we shall not leave. Plus the actions of the Prophet ﷺ demonstrate to us, regardless of why it started, the Prophet, peace be upon him, established it as his practice that, was, that, was, that needed to continue. And so it continued on at that point. So that's just a little bit of detail about how the Prophet ﷺ, yeah, exactly, the, the, the قول of Umar bin al-Khattab is, فِيمَا الرَّمْلَانِ وَالْكَشِفَ عَنِ الْمَنَاكِبِ وَقَدَ أَتَى اللَّهُ الْإِسْلَامَ God has now established Islam. وَنَفَلْ كُفْرَ وَأَهْلَهُ And the disbelievers and the enemies are gone here, from here from Makkah. And he said, وَمَعَ ذَلِكَ لَا نَتْرُكُ شَيْئًا كُنَّا نَفَعَلُهُ مَعَ رَسُولَ we shall not stop practicing the tradition of the Prophet, peace be upon him, that we did while we were in his company. So that is a little bit about how the Prophet ﷺ did the tawaf. One little interesting detail that comes up in the Hajjat al-Wida of the Prophet ﷺ is that the Prophet ﷺ, he said that the ihram garments for the men must be unstitched. And what that more so means is that it can't be like a shirt or something. It has to be an open garment, not sewn together like a shirt, okay? However, even though white, a white plain garment is preferable, but an ihram can be any garment that someone has available. And that's why the ihram of the Prophet ﷺ, the upper garment that he used, the top garment that he used during the Umrah of Hajjatul Wida is actually in the narration of Abu Dawood from, um, from the companions of the Prophet ﷺ is that the garment of the Prophet ﷺ was burdan akhdar. Burdan akhdar. He had used a green sheet, a green shawl. So that just let, that demonstrates to us that it doesn't necessarily have to be white. It's preferable just to make sure that it's plain and it's clear and it shows more simplicity, right? However, it doesn't necessarily, if somebody can't afford a brand new white garment and they just have like two sheets at home, they can use those sheets, all right? Secondly, the Prophet ﷺ, when he was done with this tawaf and he prayed those two rakahs like we talked about, there are authentic narrations explicitly about the Prophet ﷺ, specifically in those two rakahs, reading Surah Fatiha, then he read, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ And then in the second rakah, Surah Fatiha, and then he read, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٍ سُورَةُ الْإِخْلَاسِ Another thing, very interestingly, is that it, during this Hajjatul Wida, and we'll be talking about it later, that the narration of Bukhari mentions that the Prophet ﷺ in a hajj, when you count the umrah, 
and then you count the Hajj itself, there can be up to three sets of tawafs at a minimum that have to be made. Three tawafs that have to be made. You make the tawaf for when you perform the umrah, number one. Number two, you do the tawaf that is known as tawaf al-ziyarah. So you, after the 8th of Dhul-Hijjah in Mina, which we're going to talk about, the 9th in Arafah, Muzdalifah, on the 10th you come back to Mina, and then you come back to Mecca and you do a tawaf in Asari. That tawaf is called tawaf al-ziyarah or tawaf al-ifadah. That's the second tawaf you end up doing during a trip of Hajj, at a minimum, at a minimum. And the third tawaf you end up doing at a minimum is before leaving, before departing from Makkah, and it's called tawaf al-wida, the farewell tawaf. At a minimum, three tawafs. Some of these tawafs, some of the scholars mentioned that the very first one he did in the Umrah, he did that on foot. Because Jabir specifically mentions, Ramala thalathan wa masha arba'an. He did it on foot. However, the last two tawafs that the Prophet ﷺ did, he most likely did, according to the hadith of Bukhari, on the back of a camel. He did the tawaf riding the camel. So kind of like a wheelchair, imagine. Because the Prophet ﷺ, let's not forget, is almost 63 years old at this time. And so by the end of the journey of Hajj, the Prophet ﷺ was fatigued and tired to the point where the Prophet ﷺ actually did the tawaf tawaf of Nabi ﷺ al-bayti ala ba'irin. And that's why we know that you can gesture, even if you can't physically kiss or touch the black stone, you can gesture towards it. Because the Prophet ﷺ, when he was riding the camel, obviously he could not you know, keep getting down from the camel. To kiss the black stone would have been difficult. So every time he passed by the black stone, the Prophet ﷺ simply gestured towards it. And he kept on going and kept on moving forward. So I thought that was also quite fascinating. Again, Ibn Kathir ta'ala, um, from the narration of Sahih Muslim, he deduces that likely what happened was that the Prophet ﷺ, you know, some say that he did two of these tawafs on foot and he did the last one on the back of a camel or he did the first and the last one on foot, the middle one on a camel and some even deduce that he did the first one on foot and the last two he ended up doing on the back of the camel. In either scenario, he did both. He walked and he did on the back of the camel and that's how we know it's okay for somebody who needs to due to age or health or whatever the reason may be, them doing a tawaf in a wheelchair is just as valid as someone who does it on foot and it does not take anything away from their reward. Wallahu ta'ala a'lamu wa ahkamu. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So, the next thing I wanted to mention here specifically from the tawaf and the umrah of the Prophet sallallahu and with this inshallah we're, we'll be coming to the conclusion for today. In the, in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, there's a very interesting narration that a man narrates um, that from Umar bin al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, that, you know, we talked about the Prophet kissing the black stone, touching the Yemeni corner, kissing the black stone on every single circuit. However, Umar bin al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala anhu narrates that the Prophet said to him, Ya Umar, innaka rajulun qawiyun. Oh, Umar, you are a very big, strong man. He said, He said, don't rush 
up to the black stone, to kiss the black stone to, in such a way that you end up physically hurting or harming someone less strong than you, somebody who's weaker. Like, don't go in there and just start throwing bows. Don't do that. All right? Be gentle, be delicate, be careful. He says, In wajatta khalwatan fastalimhu. If you find that it is open, empty, then go kiss it. Wa illa, but if you find it's rushed and crowded, fastaqbilhu, then face towards it, turn. Turn towards it as you're aligned with it, turn towards it. Fahalil wakabir. Then gesture towards it. And then basically from there say Bismillah Allahu Akbar. La ilaha illallah Allahu Akbar. Say it from a distance while gesturing towards it. And this is an authentic narration. In another narration, the Prophet ﷺ, he elaborates and he tells Umar bin al-Khattab radiallahu Ya Aba Hafs, innaka rajulun qawiyun fala tuzahim ala rukan. Don't cause a scene there at the Hajjul Aswad at the corner. فَإِنَّكَ تُؤْذِيَ الضَّعِيفِ You will harm people. Particularly you'll harm people, harm people who might be physically weaker than you are. And that's not okay. وَلَكِنْ إِنْ وَجَدْتَ خَلْوَةً فَاسْتَلِمْهُ If you find it open, then Bismillah, go for it. وَإِلَّا فَكَبِّرْ Otherwise, if it's crowded, say Allahu Akbar from a distance, فَمْضِي And then keep walking. Keep walking. That is just as good. And not only is the Prophet ﷺ, of course, him saying it, that's just as good, makes it just as good. But the Prophet ﷺ, for our kind of consolation, he even demonstrated it. That's why when he was doing tawaf on his camel, instead of parking the camel right there in front of Al-Hajr al-Aswad, and then getting down, of course, everyone would have moved for the Messenger ﷺ. But the Prophet ﷺ is teaching us through his action. He kept on going, he gestured towards it, said, Allahu Akbar from a distance, and then he kept on going. So he demonstrates to us that it is completely okay and equally as valid to do it in that particular fashion. And that's just something very important to remember. Um, and so first of all, if we ever find ourselves in that, op- in that situation, okay, which is basically all the time, if you go there, right, khalwatan, I don't know about if that's ever going to happen. You know, may Allah grant you an opportunity. Nothing's impossible, of course. Allah can do anything for you. However, if you find it open, you're probably not going to find it open. I'll go out on a limb and say that's probably not going to happen. Therefore, follow the advice of the Prophet ﷺ. Don't add to the situation there by jumping in and causing a ruckus. Okay? Number one, don't do it. Follow the sunnah. The sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. And keep going. Gesture and keep going. Number two... Just to kind of think about and reflect upon, I know that when you see people there, people there are, you might see, and you might feel like it's not appropriate for them to behaving that way. Let's say it this way. It's always all in the wording, it's all in your understanding, okay? That kind of behavior is not appropriate, but don't necessarily pass judgment on them, say, oh, sinful people, crazy people, Jahil, don't, don't do that. There's no good in that. Because now you're judging and backbiting people. You know, so there's no virtue in that. Don't, don't do that. That behavior is not appropriate. We don't know exactly what's going on with them, what's not going on with them. All right? We all have moments of weakness. You know, 
Some of our weakness, moments of weakness are not so good situation. Their moment of weakness is they were overcome by the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at the sacred house of God. Doesn't make them bad people. If anything, you can appreciate their sincerity. Alright? And thirdly, this is why, even though it's not necessary, but I, need, I feel like I need to justify this. Whenever I end up having the opportunity to take people for Hajj or Umrah, I usually end up instructing my group that my group is not allowed. People from my group are not allowed to go there and to try to kiss the black stone. There's always a few brothers, of course, younger brothers who are always very upset at that. But I just wanted to point that out as soon as the process comes. So I was right and you were wrong. All right? But uh, little, small victories. Small victories. So inshallah, uh, again, I had wanted us to get further. But again, you know, we want to make sure that we can fully you know, learn and appreciate and get as close to as we can experiencing the Hajj of the Prophet So we'll go ahead and pause here for today, inshallah, for this session. In the next session, we'll talk about the Sa'i of the Prophet how he performed the Sa'i. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala invite us all to the Kaaba for Hajj and Umrah. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability to practice everything that was said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. نستغفرك ونتوب إليك